Dear fellow redeemed, we consider briefly our gospel reading from the gospel of Luke chapter 9, especially the first portion, verses 9, verses 51 through 54. And as we begin looking at that, the question from James and John, these brothers that were nicknamed the, the sons of thunder, perhaps for their rocky and impetuous personalities, for things just like this. Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And they didn't have to go through Samaria. There was a perfectly good highway that went around it. But Jesus wanted to. And there are James and John... When the next town says, no thanks, Jesus, we want you to go somewhere else. We don't need you here. There are James and John. Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them from heaven? Wow. I mean, it's, it's almost the same attitude that they had when they and their mother came and said, Lord, can we sit on your right and on your left? It's this attitude that says what I want and what I need is whatever I want to happen right now. But just maybe, before we entirely dismiss them, maybe we take a moment to consider. Consider that maybe there is an element of truth and that they were a little bit correct. Here's Jesus bringing the word of life. And here's Jesus, the, the very Son of God, and James and John, putting the best construction on it, James and John certainly knew this and loved this fact and appreciated it. And what else did the Samaritans deserve? What else would they deserve for completely rejecting the Son of God? What else, what else would they deserve if God is the very one who, 1,400 years previously, had appeared to his people with fire and cloud and earthquake and, and lightning and the sound of trumpets there at Mount Sinai. And here were the Samaritans treating it like, like it's no big deal. Well, Jesus, we saw the rest of your travel itinerary and, um, and no thanks. Jesus, we saw that you're a Bears fan. You're on your way to Chicago. And so no thanks. You kind of understand what Peter and... Well, what James and John are saying. As they're saying, Lord, can you call down, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people for rejecting you? They have a, a love and an understanding of who this Jesus is. But even more, they have an understanding of what his holiness entails. That God had appeared to his people. That God had chosen to walk with his people. That God had, had even come in order to save his people. And the, there was this village saying, no, no thanks. And before we get to anything else that we're talking about today, we have to at least understand this fact that this isn't some ambivalent action that they are carrying out. This isn't some, well, take it or leave it, you know, different, different attitudes for different people, different mindsets, and everybody is entitled to his or her own opinion. <laughs> no way. Not when it comes to what God says, and not when it comes to the appearance of holy God among his people. Like, that's an idea that, 
that creeps in so easily. And that's an idea that, that we subscribe to so easily. That what I want and what I decide and my own personal boundaries of, of my freedoms are things that nobody can really touch. But when God shows up, when God shows up, what do they say? No, thank you. The people did not welcome him because he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And what other answer is there than fire from heaven? This outright rejection of the very Son of God. What other answer is there to the arrogance of the human heart that says, I know better and I don't want what you have to offer? We have to at least see the value and the understanding of James and John here. That at, at first blush, you read that and it's like, whoa, that's a little, little much, don't you think? <laughs> Let's dial it back a little bit. But realistically, that's exactly what the Samaritans deserve. Realistically, that's exactly what every heart deserves. When it says, I know better, and I want what I want, and I want it now. But there's more. Because here are James and John. Perhaps, perhaps they know enough about the truth of God, and they have heard Jesus preach enough that they know exactly who he is. And they see their role and the, the, the part that they have in the proclamation of the gospel. That they are involved in the ministry that Jesus carries out. And they understand, and at the very least, they have some beginning of an understanding on the deep and eternal impact that these words would have. And perhaps it kind of gets to their head. And I guess that's the other side. The other side where they've got enough understanding about the Word of God, and they've got enough understanding so that they can cloak and project the image that they are doing this for a good and godly reason. That maybe there is still that animosity between these two ethnic groups living next to each other. And at the very least, all it took was one excuse, and then we can let them have it. And you don't have to look very far to see echoes of that one as well. When your personal beliefs or beliefs that are even scriptural beliefs are verified in the public square. When the word of God is upheld or when the word of God is attacked, it is very easy to say, now I've got the reason and now I've got the justification to completely go on the attack, to shut down any discussion and to say, now is the time for judgment to happen. Now is the time for the error to be corrected. And now is the time when this person is really going to hear what they need to know. That it even happens with us. That it still happens with us. To, to know what God has to say. And to use that not as the proclamation and the basis for sharing the word of God. But as the reason to, to speak up with an attitude that says, now I finally get to at least correct this wrong a little bit. 
and I finally get to speak to exactly what has been bothering me and for a long time. And I get to use God's word as the excuse, the fall boy, that if they reject what I'm saying, it's not because I'm saying it with such anger and vigor, but it's because they're rejecting the word of God. That perhaps James and John let their own emotions grab hold of their hearts. And it looks, it might be construed as a good thing, reverence for a holy God. And they can hide behind that and say, Lord, now's the time. And inwardly, the sinful heart says, oh boy, it is the time. So there's some of that going on, back and forth. There's the first element of understanding that, that rejecting the word of God and rejecting what our Lord has to say is a dangerous thing. And maybe a little dose of reality that when God's word is rejected... God is serious about that, and the judgment that he holds off is a judgment that is still coming. And that a sinful rejection of the word of God is just as deserving of fire and brimstone as the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And on the other hand, trying to parse out our emotions and our own feelings and how even our sinful flesh knows how to use the word of God and hide behind the word of God so that we can make it look like make it look like I'm concerned about the word of God when really I'm most concerned about getting my way I'm most concerned about winning the argument so there's those things that are going on in the background but I think we also see what Jesus has to say how he responds. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. You don't know what kind of spirit is influencing you, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy people's souls, but to save them. That Jesus reserves for himself that final judgment. And he calls his Christians to speak. And that's exactly what we celebrate today on June 25th, uh, 1530. The Lutherans were finally called to speak, and they had been working on this project for a long time. Um, and this took place in Germany, in a place called Augsburg. June 25th, 1530. The ruler of all of Europe is there. And he's also been called the, the head of the, the political church, because there's this intertwining of the responsibilities of the church and the state is what's going on. Charles V there is sitting on the throne and he's overseeing this church council because he's also overseeing the politics attached to it. He oversees what is called the Holy Roman Empire. And there are these people up in Germany who are saying they don't want to be part of his empire. Well, they do, <laughs> but they don't want to be part of his church. And so he calls this group of people together all the way from Rome up to, you know, northern Germany and to the very edge of, of Europe, the eastern edge. And he calls them all together. And it's kind of a debate. Do we, do we want it all in Latin, which is the language of the church? And that's what Charles V wanted. 
If we just read it all in Latin, then the common people won't know what we're talking about, and we can just we can just get take, take care of the, the politics, and we can straighten out this disagreement. And the Lutherans, the Lutheran princes there at Augsburg, they said no. We have come to read a statement of faith that would also provide the legal justification for them to exist. This was a, a tense moment because they had to provide a theological reason for their political state to exist. And that if they had, if they had failed, then they would have ignited a civil war at the very least. Or even more desperately, they would have lost the truth of the word of God and been coerced to remain within the Roman Catholic Church. And so this is, this is a document, the Augsburg Confession, which we have a few excerpts from today. This is a document that is both a statement of faith, this is what we believe, as well as a legal document saying this is the, the case that we are presenting before the court. And as these Lutheran princes gathered together before, before Charles V, and they stood there, and Charles V said, all right, let's, let's have it in Latin, because it's a church affair. And then, by the way, the people outside who have all gathered to listen, they won't understand a word of what we're saying. All the Lutheran governors, you could say, that's kind of the equivalent, all the Lutheran governors stood up together, and they had their representative read it in German, the language of the people, so that they would understand the theological reason, the biblical basis for why we believe what we believe. To stand up and say that we are confessing the truth in a language that you can understand so that you can know not only what you believe, but also why. And they stood and they read the entire Augsburg Confession. It was probably a good 25 or 30 minutes worth. And that was really the birthday of the, the Lutheran Church, June 25th of 1530. Because that Augsburg Confession would be the basis and the reason why those Lutheran princes, or you know, governors in our terminology, the reason why those Lutheran princes would be able to have Lutheran churches within their lands while still remaining under the umbrella of the Holy Roman Empire. And where does this fit with our gospel reading? Because it's easy to get distracted, to let our emotions get in the way. And it's easy to get distracted and think that I'm saying the right thing for the right reason. But here, there at Augsburg, and even here today, Jesus doesn't call us to be the final judge and jury. He calls us to be faithful with our proclamation, faithful with what we say, both individually and as a church body and as a congregation. He calls us to be faithful in what we do so that by what we do, we also confess that truth of this is what we believe. And that, that convention at Augsburg perhaps reminds us of that fact. That the truth of God's word isn't something simply reserved to those who have gone to school for eight years or more. But it's something that each of us has in our hands. 
And because each of us has that truth of God's word, each of us has that same responsibility to confess it faithfully. And boy, there are times when that temptation of James and John really, really shows up. There are times when there's a strong temptation to finally say everything that I haven't said for a long time, everything that I've been afraid to say, because now, now it looks like the power and the might is on my side and I don't have anything to be afraid of. Now it looks like now is the time when I will finally win the argument and I can be a little bit more straightforward about what we believe and why. Because now, I don't have any fear of failure. Is that possible? Or does that happen? Does that happen where Christians, maybe for, maybe for a long time, you've avoided that person, you've avoided that conversation, you've kind of kept quiet to yourself and said, well, if I just, just keep it to myself, then it's my own personal belief and nobody else is going to squ um, squabble with me about what I believe. Is it possible that you've avoided the conversation because, um, because it would take a little bit more effort of, of listening and understanding and having to exercise some care and some patience? Or the other direction? When events change and you feel more like the right and the power is on your side, that all of a sudden um, it's a lot easier to speak. Take, for instance, the announcement that came, well, one of the announcements that came from this session of our Supreme Court, where they, they said that this federal ruling wasn't really a federal ruling, that it should be something discussed in the states. And every discussion board online is now just a dumpster fire of, of arguing, arguments back and forth. And how many Christians how many Christians that I know have you know, spoken in favor of, of life from its very beginning to its natural end? How many Christians now feel like they've got all the rights and all the ability to say everything that they haven't said? And how many times that degrades into the personal attack? Our own modern version of do you want me to call down fire on these people because I don't like them, but now I've got the excuse to hide behind the truth? And the human heart hasn't changed very much, no, has it? Where the effort of needing to speak with somebody and the responsibility on the Christian to speak with somebody that that is pushed aside when it looks like we've got, we've got the ability to speak and boy oh boy, now I've got five out of nine justices on my side too. And so I should. And where is the Christian confession? Where is the Christian confession when Christians only speak up because we think the politics match with our beliefs? Where is the Christian confession when, when our children need to be instructed in the word of God? 
And they need to be instructed in a word of God that is, yes, in the context of, of a nation that calls itself Christian, but they will be growing up in a world that will be completely anti-Christian, even more than it is today. Where is the Christian confession of the Lutherans who stood together there at Augsburg and said, this is what we believe, and this is the legal basis for why. And I'm going to stand here rather than give up on even one element of what I believe. Where is the Christian confession that Jesus encourages? When he says, friends, it's not time for fire. It's time to talk. When he says, friends, you don't know what kind of spirit is influencing you. The Son of Man did not come to destroy people's souls, but to save them. Because that's the core of it. That's the heart of it here. James and John are so caught up in what they want, and they're so caught up in their sense of being right, and they're so caught up in how they think God should act. I want to see the glory now. I want to see the conversions now. I want to see the baptisms now. I want to see these, these villages bow the knee in worship, or boy, oh boy, are they going to get it if they don't. Boy, oh boy, we are correct. And we're on the side of right. And now's my time to say, Jesus, time to send some fire. That attitude that does not understand in the least how God's kingdom works. The attitude that wants fire and brimstone, but doesn't see where that brimstone ought to be directed. And Jesus says, dear Christian, he came for you. He came for your soul, too. He came to reform your life and to change your heart, not through external edicts and laws and controls, but through this word of God. He came to bring faith through this same word of God attached to water and holy baptism or attached to the elements here where he wants to work from the inside out to change your heart and to change your life. And that doesn't always look as flashy and spectacular as the other ways that God has chosen to act. And it doesn't always go as quickly as we might hope. But that's exactly what Jesus encourages here. He says that this is how the kingdom of God is. It is not a matter of, of your own perception and your own seeing. It is not a matter of establishing a worldly utopia. It's a matter of God sending his spirit to each individual heart. So that over time, through contact with the word of God, that word of God shapes the action and gives confidence to the confession. So that the Christian will say, How? How can I serve my Lord who has given me everything? That I can serve him best, maybe, yes, by providing a clear and careful witness to the truth in whatever public square the Lord gives me, a carefully worded Facebook post. And <laughs> I mean, for me, I just share those who write better than I do. <laughs> you scroll through mine. 
But the purpose here isn't to bring about and change the world. The purpose here is to be so engrossed with and in love with the Word of God that Jesus builds a church within your own heart. And that each of us is like one more brick in his church and his work here. That, you know, the attitude of James and John says, I want to see a change now and I want to be able to measure the reaction. And boy, oh boy, if it doesn't happen on my timeline, then it's time, time for judgment. And the way Jesus responds... The way Jesus responds to them is that he says, you know, you have to be a little bit more patient with the word of God, yet persistent in sharing it. You have to be a little bit more patient in how God continues to work, and yet faithful in using that word. Because the time hasn't come, at least not yet, for fire and brimstone. And looking in the mirror, thank God for that. That Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for you and for me, to make you his very own, to wash away your sin, and to address even that heart that wants to hide behind his word. And Jesus has said, dear friend, do you see how your God works? Not in the flashy and spectacular fire from heaven, but in the suffering and the painful groaning of a man on a cross. Dear Christian, do you see how your God works? Not in the flashy and spectacular fire from heaven, but in a taste and a little drink where God hides his forgiveness and yet gives it to each individual believer. That's the God we worship, who opens our eyes to say, you know, this is the attitude where you can be, you can be passionate about truth. And you can be passionate about what you believe. But don't let that passion overtake the patience of our God, who wants people to be saved through this same word. Amen.